This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, gentle listeners. You're listening to The Law School Show. I'm your host, Jake Clark, and today I'm talking to Professor P.M. Vasudev about a topic that I think a lot of us have become at least passingly familiar with, which is the GameStop short squeeze and the ensuing impact that might have on securities law and the general study of law and economics. Professor Vasudev, how are you doing today? Well, not too bad. Thanks for asking, Jake. How are you? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. I was just actually doing some reading on the general science of short squeezes before this, or study of short squeezes, rather, economics. I'm still trying to get a bit of a bead on it. This has actually been a very interesting thing for people like myself who don't have a very, like, who have a bit of a background in economics, but maybe are a little less aware of finance as a, as a construct. And I'm very interested to talk today about how that will interweave with the law. Would you be able to introduce yourself to us there, Professor Vasudev? Tell us uh, what you work in and how you uh, how you see the law? Sure. Uh, I, as Jake has been mentioning, I am Professor P.M. Vasudev. So I have been with the University of Ottawa for over 10 years now. This is my 11th year. I teach business law courses, uh, mainly corporate finance, corporate governance, and uh, and business organizations. And I also taught securities law for a couple of terms, but uh, not anymore. My research areas are these. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to teach in the very areas that I research into and write about, which is corporate governance and the capital markets. So the things that are happening right now, or that happened just now in the market, the meme stock episode, is... uh, quite well connected with my area of research and teaching interest. So just as a primer before we go into the actual events of it, um, for those who are maybe interested in looking into law and economics or kind of want to conceptualize the field described as law and economics, how would you describe that uh, that general study? Well, law and economics, this is kind of an interdisciplinary approach that emerged It has been there at least since early 20th century, but it became really influential in the closing decades. What we try to do here in law and economics is try to evaluate or measure law and legal rules from an economic perspective, mainly in terms of their ability to enhance efficiency. Uh, Now, these terms, uh, you must understand, are somewhat loaded. So when we talk about evaluating law and legal rules uh, from the perspective of uh, efficiency, the trend has been, trend in law and economics has been towards making legal regimes enabling. There is this idea that uh, it's kind of closely aligned to the deregulation movement itself, uh, which was influential in the 80s and the 90s. Law and economics scholars examine phenomena Uh, law, legal rules, and related phenomena for their overall economic impact. Economic impact measured in terms of what are called Pareto optimality or the Calder-Hicks efficiency. Pareto optimality is met when uh, a policy measure or a legal rule uh, benefits some 
but no one is worse off. So there are no, there's no negative impact, no losers, only some winners, but though not all win, but there are no losers. So that is Pareto optimality. Then you have the Calder-Hicks efficiency, which recognizes that you know, Pareto optimality is kind of utopian. There'll always be some losers. So in the Calder-Hicks efficiency, the tests are, okay, we recognize there are some winners and some losers. Now, are the losers in the position to claim compensation for the damage they suffered? So this is the Calder-Hicks efficiency. So, so these are the kind of tests with which law and economics scholars evaluate laws. And, and, and as I mentioned, law and economics is kind of closely connected with the deregulation movement. And there is this idea that not, uh, not regulating or minimal regulation is the best guarantor of economic efficiency from the perspectives that I just uh, spoke about, the Pareto optimality and Calder-Hicks. So it, it's more than just an interdisciplinary approach to evaluating law. It's also political in the sense that there is this uh, strong anti-regulatory flavor to it, underpinning to it. Now, I'm, I'm wondering how much we want to go into the, uh, the relationship of things like the Chicago School. A little later on, we're going to talk about the, uh, the 08 bailout a little bit briefly. And I'm wondering uh, about things like Glass-Steagall repeal. Would you say that the field of law and economics was very strongly engaged in this political capacity around moments like that? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, um, much of the financial liberalization that occurred on both sides of the Atlantic in the 1980s, uh, perhaps the, the final step in this was what's called the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000. And even before that, you know, the Glass-Steagall Act had been considerably relaxed in the sense that the Chinese wall that was constructed under the New Deal between investment banking and commercial banking was, uh, was demolished, was removed. So commercial banks could get into investment banking so they could actively trade in stocks. So this is one part of the deregulatory, deregulatory agenda of law and economics. Another, especially in the context of the GameStop and, and whatever happened with its shares in, in the recent weeks, is about what's called the efficient markets hypothesis. So here again, uh, you know, um, stock market booms and busts have been endemic uh, since the origin of the markets dating back to early 17th century, sorry, late 17th century, early 20th century early 18th century, we had our first stock market boom bust in what's called the South Sea bubble of 1720. Not to interject there, but I, I uh, realized this sea shanties are very big right now. And right around the time GameStop was happening. And I really wonder if it's some kind of echo of the South Sea bubble in history as these two things between maritime culture and stock market fungibility. Uh, well, in terms of numbers, yes, the the steep rise in value and then the fall in value, but the driving factors were quite different in, in both uh, because the South Sea bubble was generally uh, driven by 
a positive sentiment and, and what's called the animal spirits, which, you know, Keynes spoke, wrote about in, in, in 1930s, the animal spirits of the stock market. And the John Maynard Keynes, the, the British economist, he was always quite kind of critical of, uh, of the valuation methods applied in the in the stock market uh, what was recognized as speculation at least until early 20th century uh, but then that gave way to what came to be called the efficient markets hypothesis which was framed in the 1960s the chicago school uh, school that you just spoke about eugene farmer he was one of the architects of the uh, efficient markets hypothesis and, and the idea is that Markets have informational efficiency. Markets will absorb the information that is available about companies and apply that information in determining the trading prices of their shares. So this is called the informational efficiency of the market. And a kind of a quasi-scientific aura was given to the market's methods of price discovery what was a few decades earlier considered speculation gave way to to this idea that markets are efficient so all we need to do is to give them information about companies and then uh, they will arrive at efficient values for the stocks so this uh, theory was propounded in 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 these words it was then uh, not so prominently earlier but but it was given a lot of it was given flesh and blood and, and presented as a theory in the 1960s and uh, with this it was kind of taken for granted that the market's ways are almost infallible and and that was kind of, that has been put to test every now and then and the GameStop episode is I guess uh, a very recent one where uh, it uh, underscores the problems with the efficient market efficient markets hypothesis. So I'd, I'd like to get into the incident then. I'd like to get into the actual events of it. And this is the thing. I'm going to try and explain the GameStop as best I understand it. And uh, Professor Vasudev, if you see me wandering into these areas, like if there's any kind of assumed sentiments or biases in my understanding, please let me know. Because there's part of this, I think, is very much uh, for someone, again, like myself, who has some background in economics and very little in finance understanding this, it's kind of like when you read or watch the big short and you kind of know what you understand, but it's also harder to, it still feels a little opaque. So I'm going to try and unfurl this as best I understand and then ask you if, if that was illustrative. So as I'm aware, I became aware of this on January 27th, 2021, when essentially the news that I got was that a subreddit, r slash Wall Street Bets, had managed to deeply frighten a, a series of hedge fund managers. And then later on, this unfolded into a drama specifically around a short, the shorting of the, the GameStop stock, the stock of the company GameStop. And this is a short squeeze, was a short, sorry, was explained to me as um, you rent a ball you for, a fit, for the value of the ball, but not just for a, the sort of N quantity of what that value will be. And then you sell it in anticipation or you rather rent it or sell it to someone else in anticipation of that value going down. So you lock in that amount. And then when it does go down and when the debt is eventually reclaimed, you're you know, doing well by that margin. And the, the upshot of that, as I was given to understand it and as the to the moon uh, sort of sentiment came after that was that 
there is a set amount of gain, but there is also an infinite capacity for loss, which allowed the price of the stock to be driven up massively. And in the ensuing week, up until the point when the debt had to be called in, there was this kind of ersatz online movement rallying from a very strange variety of figures. Like uh, Elon Musk and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez came together on this one, among other things. Uh, Eventually, as we sit now, uh, the price of the stock ended up plummeting a great deal. And the general upset around it seems to have revealed to many people, especially in the initial part of it, where it was this, again, a subreddit, this online community that managed to get onto this thing that does seem esoteric and essentially frighten the general, as you said, kind of the concept of the efficient markets hypothesis in general, but specifically its current iteration. So I'm going to pause there and ask, what do you think of that understanding? Uh, Your account of what happened over the last few weeks is is quite accurate in in most of the things that uh, captured. And you're right. Uh, So it does have shades of the efficient markets hypothesis. So let me step back a little bit and and explain what shorts are, short selling is, and then go from there, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Go right ahead. So I I just spoke about the informational efficiency of markets, the idea that markets apply the information about companies and uh, determine share valuations in the market. Share valuations can go to any extent in either direction. That's the open structure we have. There is no anchor value or anything at all to which it is tied. So in an informationally efficient market, when you postulate that valuations are driven by markets, understanding and interpretation of the information that's available about a company, the prices can go up like it does with Tesla, because it seems to uh, the Tesla is uh, re- reportedly having this technology that no one else has. And, and you know what has been happening with Tesla's stock, especially during the COVID times. That's one. The other informational efficiency impact is when companies seem to be in the sunset zone, like GameStop. GameStop uh, relied essentially on the on uh, stores, physical stores, brick and mortar stores uh, for selling its video games. And this was understood as something that's uh, becoming obsolete. So GameStop's future was considered bleak. So the professional investors, the hedge funds in particular, went in for shorting the stock. Okay, when you when you look at the stock market and how market actors make money there, it's mainly the bulk of the money is made in a rising market. As prices go up, you make profits. But the outlier is short selling where you expect prices to go down and bet on that. And short selling to some extent creates what's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, because you and a group of investors like you consider Uh, GameStop and companies like GameStop, maybe in another field, maybe for another reason, you think they are on the decline. So you bet against them. You bet that their shares are going to go down. So you start shorting their shares. This can be done in several ways. We have the futures and options. That's a very speculative way of uh, doing it. But taking a short position is selling the shares of a company that you don't have. And the very activity of selling has a depressing effect on prices. When somebody goes, 
when the activity in accounting, if a lot of people are buying Apple shares or Amazon shares, the demand itself drives prices up. In the same way, if a lot of people are selling a given share, be it GameStop or something like that, the price drops. So the mere act of selling brings the prices down. But then to sell, you must have the shares, right? You can sell something you don't have. And shorting has been permitted. It has been there in the market and, and it is permitted, uh, except that we have this kind of uh, a gray line that divides between legal shorting and illegal shorting, which is when does your shorting become manipulative? Because uh, manipulative practices are illegal under securities law, but not shorting per se. But then how, when does shorting become manipulative? That's a question to be fought out in courts, I guess, in individual cases. And so that was a threat that was held out against the retail investors that are alleged to have driven up the price of GameStop shares. But before I go there, let me speak a little bit more about shorting. So when you don't have the shares, but you sell them, uh, that's called naked shorting. The idea being when it comes time to settle your trade, by then the prices would have dropped. So what you do is you buy the shares at the lower price and then settle your trades. Does that make sense? Yes. The other way is to borrow. So when you borrow, you can always return, right? So you borrow and then you start shorting. And when the prices drop to the extent that you want them to drop, you can return the borrowed shares, buy the shares at the price at which you're willing to buy them and then settle the trades. So as you can see, this is quite a speculative way of playing the market. Yes. But then these practices have flourished in a culture where we have increasingly come to believe that shares are trading in shares as an activity in itself and the society gets richer by doing this. You know, if we all uh, keep selling shares amongst, our, uh, amongst ourselves and share prices keep going up, we will all be richer. There is this idea that has been propagated at least since the 19, 1930s. 1930 was the year in which a proclamation was made by, by a leading investor on Wall Street and, and then some academics have followed up on that. So there is this idea that financial market operations are a public good. They are in the public interest. So it is that soil, it is that climate in which these practices have germinated and, and uh, flourished. So now, specifically in the context of GameStop, as I mentioned, the expectation was that its business doesn't have a bright future. So which means its prices have to drop. And there is what's called the herd mentality in the markets. Uh, George Soros, the celebrated investor, has written quite a bit about it. And he says it makes sense to behave like, uh, to have the herd mentality. Uh, so it's, it's sometimes very important that you do what everyone else is doing or else you get left out or you get trampled upon. So those kind of ideas are there. They drive the markets and especially among the, what is what I call the financial industry, the investment industry, uh, that has become a significant presence in the socio-economy over the last 30 years in particular. It has been there, uh, but but in the last 30 years or so, it, it has an outsized presence uh, in our lives. So uh, the industry, what do I mean by the investment industry? I mean the investment banks, I mean the hedge funds, I mean the private equity and the asset management companies that manage your and my savings 
almost all our savings are in the market. CPP is in the market. Uh, your uh, employment pension, your contribution and your employer's contribution, that's invested in the market. Now, these are not invested by the employers themselves. They have asset management companies, Wall Street and Bay Street companies that do this job for them. So they act together. So the consensus among them many times determines share prices. So the consensus from, from I wasn't following GameStop very closely until this happened. And, and even then, I don't claim to be an expert on the GameStop short squeeze episode, but some things are quite obvious. They can be stated even by a non-expert like me, which is that GameStop's future was seen to be bleak. And this was the investment industry's kind of consensus. And this drove the short selling and it's the short positions that were taken in GameStop's shares. And in fact, I remember reading somewhere, this needs verification that the number of shots that were sold is in excess of the number of GameStop shares that are actually available. Oh yeah, by a massive amount. I think it was something like there are 6,000 shares available and the number of shorts sold was about 50,000. Exactly, so, 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 this is the, so this indicates some kind of market consensus. But what I find and what most of us find somewhat unique about uh, the GameStop episode is uh, the power of retail investors using the internet and social media to reverse or, or at least uh, halt the trends that are, that are initiated and driven by the professional investors. That's something uh, remarkable uh, because retail investors have become inconsequential in the larger scheme of things uh, over the last few decades, you know, with, with all this rise of mutual funds and, and asset management companies and, uh, and online trading. So, uh, but this demonstrates that you no know, retail investors who have some knowledge of the market and who have the ability to communicate and reach out can make something like this happen in the market, push back against uh, what seems to be a consensus among the professional market actors as against these these retail investors. And that's uh, def like it's very interesting to see this when right before this interview, I took a look at the Wikipedia article because I don't obviously use Wikipedia for research. But it is always interesting to see when we talk about informational consensus, what makes it to a open source bit of information like that. And right before their account of the actual GameStop, I highlighted this on my screen, they have possible causes right before the timeline of the actual thing. And it is a two line, it is a two line uh, paragraph saying, see also financial crisis of 2007, 2008, causes of the Great Recession and economic impact of COVID-19 in the United States. That I think maybe, I think that there is this element of uh, pushing back against, like that was definitely the popular reaction to those who saw this happen. We're not entirely sure, but they're like, you know, this is this is kind of almost revenge for 08, I think, um, against like the actors who did receive massive bailouts and then didn't necessarily funnel back into the economy. Yes, okay. Let in, in, in recalling the 2008 financial crisis and the bailouts, let's remember one thing. The human tendency is we tend to recall history when things are not going too well. You know, you know this happened in the past. and, and uh, Of course. Yeah. So we tend to draw similarities. 
in my case i i don't see any similarity here except i mean i i see some significant differences okay this is uh, an episode in the financial markets and it was very the, the whole thing happened over a matter of few days and a couple of weeks maximum i think right the gamestop short squeeze whereas the financial crisis of 2008 9 was something in the making it started building up from the early 90s the u.s congress was aware of it congressional hearings were held and it was mainly played out by the financial industry actors the investment industry actors so the hedge funds and banks and so retail investors were not a part of it at all so that is one distinguishing feature it was done among professional investors and in fact that was used as the argument to fend off regulation when the u.s congress tried to regulate the argument that was advanced successfully was that look we are professional investors we know what we are doing and you have no business to regulate so this kind of takes me back to what i mentioned earlier about law and economics of its anti-regulation bias and the efficiency metric so you know we had so the financial industry's argument was look we are doing all this this is making the world a better place now if you regulate us you are going to impede our efficiency and thereby economic development will be affected this was the argument against any regulation of the 2008-9 of the events that led up to the 2008-9 crisis so so it, it had a longer history efforts to regulate etc oh yeah I, I i understand i definitely understand there it's all it, and with uh the history of finance too i think there's uh it's very difficult to get a clear picture of it i think partially because of a certain degree of politicization, but mostly because it seems like a very arcane field, probably more so than it actually is. And I think actually one, one question I do want to ask you is when, when we talk about prevalent misconceptions, when you're interacting with people, either people in, in the field or people who are outside of the field, what is um, what are some of the most prevalent like misconstruals of this, this general dynamic, I suppose, like the effect of law and economics or the history of the institutions on which it bears? Well, one uh, major misconception I find among the people is that, you know, our kind of readiness to accept the ways of the market as some kind of ways of nature. It, we, we treat it almost like the weather. You know, it, it's like having a, having a, a snowstorm or, or whatever. Not, not necessarily a snowstorm or a hot spell in the summer. Not necessarily because many of these market events are the handiwork of market actors and not sufficient attention is paid to that. And, and these actors operate in a certain framework, a deregulated framework, if you will. Yes. So that has been a major, uh, a major uh, factor in whatever happened. I don't know if you're familiar with this tweet that I came across the tweet. I, I don't follow Elon Musk. But uh, I believe he tweeted some days back about short selling in shares. He asked the question, you can't sell a car you don't own. You, don't, you can't sell a house you don't own. You, you can't even sell a shirt that you don't own, something like that. But you can sell a share that you don't own. How is that possible? So, you know, he has, according to me, you know, he is a kind of, he has a somewhat cynical understanding of the ways of the market. And of course, he is riding its wave to the fullest oh yeah but even then he, he's not exactly 
uh, a big fan of the market. That's the sense I'm getting from, from the way he speaks and, and the kind of things he does. So this is a very relevant question. So if, if we don't allow people to sell houses they don't own, we don't allow them to sell cars or any other assets that they don't own, how do we allow the financial industry to sell shares they don't own on the specious reasoning that this makes the world better for all of us? So, so we have that. So the misconceptions about these happenings, they go back. They're very long-standing habits of thought that we need to question. So they have led up to this. So here, so what is unique about this particular episode, the GameStop episode, as I as I mentioned, and as everyone else is talking about as well, is that here are a handful of nobodies, really, uh, just through their uh, power of the internet and using social media, they have been able to turn the tide uh, in, in the stocks of a particular company. And it's not all a success story because there are several soft stories as well out there. I mean, there are news stories about how people who bought at high prices are now suffering because the prices collapsed, right? GameStop shares. So misconceptions, yes, we need to revisit some of our uh, the misconceptions that have crept in in the recent decades about the benefits of deregulation and what do we mean by regulation, etc. We need to readdress these issues to get a sense of where we are and where we want to go. And, and also the oversized presence that the finance sector has come to occupy in our lives. I mean, this was to some extent reflected in the Occupy Wall Street movement. And, and now and then there were at the time, I remember there were also so the in Germany, there were protests as well. So these are all interconnected things. So we, we need uh, some kind of project that can better address these issues and come to grips with them, try to at least define the problems. One thing I, I think to that effect might have actually kind of happened with this was that I think a lot of people who felt very alienated by the apparatus of finance in general, I think feel because, you know, because it happened through through Reddit, you know, like there's this thing where it's like this, uh, this thing that is like for a lot of people is this, um, I mean, it's, it's a very multifaceted website, but it's recreational. Like it's not like you're not, we're not talking about the Wall Street Journal necessarily, but the information was accurate and it was capable of producing this incredible influence like that. I think that is an interesting sort of psychological leveling sort of approaching this. And that I, I hope may lead more people to myself included to look into these things to and to feel kind of more empowered to do something about that. I think that might have been something that I think that the opposite kind of ensued from 08. I think a lot of people felt very powerless. And that's what I kind of mean before when I'm saying that there's kind of this sense of backlash, but also this sense of bounce back from it a little bit. I mean, who's to say? Who's to say? This is still very recent in history. Of course, yeah, you're right about, you know, now, now the field being much more open and even in terms of access to information and even putting out information, you know. So we have traditionally lived in a world where there were all these uh, newspapers and hoary names like, you know, Wall Street Journal and Financial Times. And if you had something to say, to get them to publish your writing would have required a significant effort and they, they'll first ask who you are, etc. But we now live in a much more democratized environment where if you have something to communicate, you can just go out and, and, and put it out there in the market and see what traction it gains, right? Like, like an artist doesn't really depend on agents and, and, and Broadway stages to uh, stage a play. 
you can do it on YouTube. You can have your own video. People do it. You can have your own YouTube channel for, for artists. And similarly, for people who want to say something, write something, all these avenues are there now. So which means that the older ideas, you know, if something was published in the Financial Times or Wall Street Journal, that is sacrosanct. That has to be treated with greater respect than something coming out on, on Reddit. Or, or a WhatsApp group or, or whatever, or a tweet from somebody, etc. So there, there is this kind of an information avalanche that has happened. And, and the, I, I don't see any going back on that. So it's to that extent, the information outlets are there. They're going to be there. And so if somebody wants to reach out and, and have a counter narrative, like that's what happened in GameStop, right? Yes. In effect, but they weren't even talking of the shares. They were just driving up the prices. They weren't arguing that, no, uh, the hedge funds are wrong. GameStop actually has a bright future, so let's buy its shares. That's not how it happened. They said, look, these guys are shorting, so let's buy up those shares so the prices will go up. It, it was just play with the prices. Nothing to do with the underlying fundamentals, as they are called. The, the fundamentals there? Sorry. Sorry. In, in, in the business prospects. Oh, sorry. Okay. Got, got a little confused for a second. No. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the fundamentals. I was going to say, yeah, it was it was for the memes, man. Yeah, exactly. So they weren't saying it's it's not as though, you know, the, the guys on Reddit who drove up GameStop share prices were arguing that GameStop has a bright future. All the hedge funds are wrong. No. So I, I do. Uh, so I. I'm, we kind of we did touch on it largely there. I do want to ask because we talked about sort of the interplay of information relative to how we perceive commodities now and how like the field of law and economics processes commodities and how in general it's seen to evolve. And then we've also spoken about the democratization of information. I know it's very difficult to predict. It's kind of like trying to, to grab a handful of sand. But like, do you have any intuition? Do you have any uh, theories on how this will play out into how we assign value to or assign value based on information? Uh, to shares? Yeah, in general, but like specifically regarding, yeah. yeah. Specifically financial assets, because those are the ones that are subject to wild fluctuations in values, right? Yeah. Uh, well, to, to some extent, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about this in my, in my forthcoming book, because see, uh, when you talk about shares and share prices, uh, there is the distinction between what's called the primary issue of shares when the shares come out of the company, when a company issues shares. And then when the shares get traded in the market, what's called the secondary trade. Well, as far as the secondary trade is concerned, uh, prices have always been speculative and uh, the animal spirits praise a very catchy and, and a very apt phrase, according to me, that Keynes used to, to describe what goes on in the market, that doesn't look like subsiding, that doesn't look like going away anytime soon. In that analogy, then, would that make uh, market manipulators sort of shamans of the market? Uh, to some extent, because, you see, let's not forget that the Federal Reserve was established in 1913. This was in the aftermath of the panic of 1907, when money dried up. So there was this, the prices of shares had been driven up and then suddenly the animal spirits kind of ebbed. So the prices dropped. And so uh, money that had been borrowed for buying these shares at inflate, inflated prices could not be repaid. So there was a financial crisis. 
1907. In response to this, Federal Reserve was created in 1913 to create what they called elastic money. And as you can see, Federal Reserve is doing its job. That's its primary function. Everything else came later. You know, this uh, targeting inflation, assuring employment, etc. were all afterthoughts. Yeah. Primary function of Federal Reserve was to support Wall Street. Oh, yeah. And it is playing that role to perfection as we have seen since the COVID crisis set in. You had that crash in March last year, and now share prices are simply going through the roof. So uh, my point here is, you asked me, is this going to happen? Well, as long as the Federal Reserve and, and the financial system remain as they are in their current form, they can support. You know, this is called Greenspan put. Have you heard about it? Uh, I know, I've heard about Alan Greenspan. I'm not sure yeah. actually about this concept. <laughs> please, please go ahead. Yeah, explain. Uh, so, so it's what's called the Greenspan put. So the idea is that Wall Street actors can go on driving up prices. And if prices look like dropping, Greenspan will pick them up. He was the one who started the bailouts with what's called the long-term long-term capital management in, in 1997 or 98. So there is this idea that Federal Reserve will step in. And there's plenty of literature on that. So as long as the systemic arrangement continues, uh, these kind of episodes are unlikely to stop. And, and that is where, you know, the, the thing that you spoke about, the powerlessness and, and let's get back at them kind of mentality among small investors. Yes. Uh, they find an expression because there is this idea that the market is not Fair. And, and to some extent, Michael Lewis showed this in his book, you know, the... Uh, yeah, yeah, the big short. Crash Boys. The big short or Crash Boys? or he, has he... Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, I forget the name. Uh, the, the book where he, store, he wrote about the high-frequency trading, HFT. Oh, uh, yeah, I think they made a movie because he's, like, the big short is a thing I see referenced a lot. He's had, yeah. He... Yeah, no, this is the book. I don't think there's a documentary. Uh, this is uh, about the high-frequency trading where you just keep trading in shares and, and make very small amounts of money. And, and Renaissance, uh, the hedge fund founded by Jim Simons, it, it specialized in this using algorithmic models and computerized trading. They trade at uh, such enormous speed that by sheer velocity, they make money. <laughs> oh, with the high-frequency cable and things like that. High-frequency trading. Yeah. yeah. So so things like that. So, so we, we have created all this systemic support for financial speculation, which is in, underpinned by the idea that financial speculation advances the public interest. Except that we now drop the word financial speculation, we replace it with efficient markets. Efficient markets advance the public interest. And for efficient markets to function, we need these supporting arrangements, the Federal Reserve and, and technology systems and, and uh, deregulated trade, like for instance, commodity futures. So it's, it's, it's a complex package. So you tweaking at the margins may not really uh, produce significant change. That, that may not be very encouraging, but, but I think that that's just what it is. And sort of just as a bit of a sort of way to frame this just in, in a little bit more of like a straight legal context, there's an aspect of this, which I think to, to some people, I think, I mean, American media is our media in large part. So I think we experience this fairly concurrently. But when we talk about securities regimes, Canada has a set of very distinct differences, like down to the definition of a security from the United States. 
do, do you have any advice on how, especially if we're studying Canadian law, how we should view these parities, these similarities? Like, how should we uh, contextualize developments in the American sphere? Well, in, in my opinion, the differences between the Canadian and American securities regimes is not really substantive. It is more cultural. Oh, interesting. Could you, could you expand on that? Yeah, Canadians may not do certain things that that be done in the U.S. So it, it's more, for example, why did the Canadian banks not get into credit derivatives? You know, we spoke about the similarity, the, the idea that there are some similarities and there is a call, recall of the 2008-9 crisis, right? Yeah. Canadian banks were not affected by it because they did not plunge into credit derivatives, unlike their American or European counterparts. So, I mean, short selling is allowed in Canada. There's, there's nothing, uh, there's no law that prohibits short selling of uh, shares. So it, this is my opinion that it, the difference is more cultural than regulatory or legal. So regardless of the rules, uh, we won't do certain things. That's very interesting, Professor Rosadev. I'll have to think about that. That's a, I I'm, find that analysis very fascinating. Now, going forward, just to sort of kind of wrap up a little bit, when we when we look at this, if we are feeling confused, I we, I could just we, I could just say buy your book, which <laughs> well, do it, please. Actually, let's let's just go with that. Where are your um where where can we find your publishing and or your teaching on this? Uh, well, my my book, my first book, which kind of condenses and builds upon what I've written so far, is coming out in. Uh... It's called Beyond Shareholder Value, a Framework for Stakeholder Governance. And, and, and most of my law review articles are available on SSRN.com and uh, ResearchGate, the other online resource. I, I talk about some of uh, these things, although I haven't yet gone into this, uh, the, the bigger connection between the stock market and the financial system. So, so that, that's a question, that's a, that's a project to be done. It's, it's a huge uh, project. Uh, but what can companies do in terms of issuing shares and managing their shares? So that's something uh, I've written about. Certainly. All right. You're here. Dear listeners, do check that out. Yeah, that has been GameStop or GameStonk, uh, as Mr. Musk did tweet. Uh, just, just sort of as a parting note, there was a thing about specifically, I mean, like, I think it's Tuesday for him to get uh, in hot water for market manipulation. Do you think that's going to come to anything? Probably not. Uh, so that would kind of, uh, maybe it might be a rap on the knuckles or something, and that might have a deterrent effect in the future. And, and there again, you know, it raises the question of uh, the too big to jail kind of the argument that was uh, raised, the complaint that was made in the context of the financial crisis of 2008-9, because all the all the actors that were responsible for the crisis were the big guys. And so what was done uh, to them? Uh, for example, uh, the uh, main person, if I remember his name, was Cassano in AIG, who sold all those credit default swaps that uh, necessitated a bailout. The U.S. Department of Justice decided not to charge him criminally. That being the case, now if uh, they bring criminal charges against small investors in this episode, that 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 would send out a very wrong political uh, message. That would be pretty alarming. Exactly, because you remember there was this huge complaint. I, I know, I mean, because you were probably. Uh, in high school at the time, I don't know, but you know, yeah. there was this big complaint against uh, the, even the Obama administration that they did not take strong action against the people that had been responsible for uh, the uh, 
2008-9 financial crisis. So, so you have that as a standard by which to measure uh, the current uh, happenings in the market. And uh, I guess we'll see how that develops. Yeah, let's see how that plays out, yeah. And in either event, it'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right there, Professor Grassadev. It was lovely to have you on the podcast. To all you listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. This has been The Law School Show. I've been Jake Clark. Thank you, Jake. Have a good one. Have a good one. Cheers. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.